0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is Antiwar News for Friday, September 9th, 2022. This is the last show for the week. I will be back after the weekend to catch you guys up on the news. But the first story today at the top of Antiwar.com, the White House says that President Biden wants other options for Iran if the nuclear deal talks fail. So this was from National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, he said that President Biden wants other available options against Iran if the current negotiations fail, which it looks like they're going to. So Kirby said that Biden, quote, has conveyed to the rest of the administration that he wants to make sure that we have other available options to us to potentially achieve that solid outcome of no nuclear weapons capability for Iran, end quote. The comments come as Israel has been pushing the U.S. to establish a credible military threat against Iran to force Tehran to make concessions. Back in July, President Biden said that he was willing to use force as a last resort against Iran to prepare to prevent them from obtaining a nuclear weapon. And while the U.S. and Israel are continue to hype up this idea that Iran seeks a nuclear weapon, There's still no indication that Tehran has made the decision to develop one or that they will in the near future. Iran is a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty and Iranian officials recently affirmed that the religious edict known as a fatwa against developing weapons of mass destruction is still the government's policy. Kirby insisted that Biden was still committed to pursuing diplomacy with Iran, but said his patience was not eternal. But the Biden administration has signaled that the negotiations with Iran to restore the JCPOA will likely not achieve success, as U.S. officials have slammed Tehran's latest response in the EU-mediated talks. Israeli media reported this week that the U.S. has conveyed to Israel that an agreement with Iran won't be signed in the foreseeable future. That's a report that I went over yesterday. So things are looking pretty bleak for these negotiations. The U.S. still hasn't like officially uh, pulled out of them. Uh, but in another sign that the JCPOA is doomed, the U.S. Treasury Department announced on Thursday more sanctions against Iran, targeting Iranian companies. In general, Biden has taken a hardline approach hardline approach in negotiations with Iran first by refusing to lift all Trump era sanctions and implementing more sanctions since he came into office. So that so-called maximum pressure campaign that you heard about a lot under the Trump administration, that's what they called that policy has continued under Biden. All the sanctions are still in place and he's added, added more since coming into office. So Biden's stance, it forced the two sides to negotiate how many sanctions the US was willing to lift and what level of sanctions relief was sufficient enough for Iran to sign a deal with the US. During negotiations last year, the two sides were close to an agreement, but the talks ultimately failed because Biden refused to guarantee that he would stay in the deal just during his term in office. Last month, in August, as the US and Iran appeared close to a deal, President Biden launched a series of airstrikes in Syria against what the US called Iran backed fighters. Iran denied having ties to the groups that the US targeted, but the strikes definitely did their part in escalating tensions in the region and with Iran. So it's just more sign another sign that the nuclear deal is, you know, that these talks aren't gonna aren't gonna get anywhere. Um, The next one, and there's a lot of context I put in there just to show that how Biden's stance in these negotiations that have been going on for so long, you know, have been hard line. And that's contrary to what the U.S. says. But if you actually look at the situation, it's pretty clear um, that he has not given really any concessions to Iran. All right. The next one here, the Mossad chief wraps up his trip to the U.S. focused on Iran, says Israel won't sit idly by. So David Barnea, he's the head of Israel's Mossad spy agency, he wrapped up a trip in Washington on Thursday that was focused on Iran, as Israel has been pushing hard for the Biden administration to exit the nuclear deal negotiations. According to a statement from the Israeli prime minister's office, Barnea stressed to officials in Washington that Israel will not, quote, be able to stand idly by while Iran continues to deceive the world, end quote. So it's sort of a common line that we see from the Israeli officials. They're saying, you know, if you return to this deal, we're not just going to sit here and not do anything about it. Um, So it's just more veiled threats from Israel. Uh, He arrived in Washington on Monday, so he was there for a good amount of time and met with a lot of high-level officials. He met with William Burns, the CIA director, national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, secretary of defense, Lloyd Austin, general Mark Milley, the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and FBI director, Christopher Ray and some senior state department officials. So he was busy while he was in Washington. That's a lot of meetings and I'm sure he wasn't saying nice things about Iran. Um, Again, in this article, I just go over some of the stuff I mentioned in the previous one, just that it looks like this Israeli pressure is working. And Israel is opposed to the JCPOA because it does not last forever. But after the agreement expires, again, Iran will be bound by the MPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, and Israel refuses to sign it due to its secret nuclear weapons program and stockpile. Context that's always missing from the mainstream uh, stories about this issue all right the next one here more military aid for ukraine today was a big day well thursday was a big day for um, aid for ukraine the biden administration announced over 2.8 billion in new military aid for ukraine and u.s allies in the region the announcement came as secretary of state anthony blinken made a surprise visit to kiev and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, chaired a meeting of defense ministers in Germany. So over in Kiev, Blinken met with Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky and other officials and said that the administration was providing $2.2 billion in foreign military financing for Ukraine and 17 other countries in the region. So foreign military financing is a State Department program that gives money to foreign governments, that they can use to purchase U.S.-made military equipment. This $2.2 billion is being pulled from that $40 billion Ukraine aid bill that President Biden signed in May, and that altogether authorized $4 billion for this foreign military financing. It's a great system for the U.S. uh, weapons makers. Government hands out money to foreign governments to buy their, their stuff. According to the Associated Press, about 1 billion of the 2.2 billion will go to Ukraine. The remaining funds, so 1 billion to Ukraine, and then 1.2 billion will be divided among Albania, Bosnia, Bulgaria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Georgia, Greece, Kosovo, Latvia, Lithuania, Moldova, Montenegro, North Macedonia. Poland, Romania, Slovakia, and Slovenia. So everybody's getting a little uh, piece of it. <laughs> and then over at the Ramstein Air Base in Germany, Lloyd Austin, he headed this meeting that he's been uh, he's been traveling to Germany to, to hold this meeting once in a while since Russia invaded. They call it the Ukraine Defense Contact Group. And there's officials there representing over 50 countries. And they go have meetings there and pretty much pledge more military aid. So while Austin was there, he announced a new $675 million weapons package for Ukraine, which according to the Pentagon includes additional ammunition for the HIMARS rocket systems. Those are the mobile uh, precision rocket systems that the U.S. has been sending Ukraine for the past few months. Uh, Four howitzers and 36,000 artillery rounds for these howitzers, 105 millimeters additional high-speed anti-radiation missiles, 100 armored high-mobility multi-purpose wheeled vessels, so that's 100 um, military armored vehicles, 1.5 million rounds of small arms ammunition, more than 5,000 anti-armor systems, 1,155-millimeter rounds of remote anti-armor mine systems, additional grenade launchers and small arms, 50 armored medical treatment vehicles, night vision devices, and other field equipment. So this is what they call the presidential drawdown authority. It's this authority that gives Biden the power to take weapons and equipment from U.S. military stockpiles and ship it directly to Ukraine. We've seen Pentagon officials say that they're running low, uh, that stockpiles are becoming depleted because of this, mainly in the ammunition, artillery ammunition, stuff like that. Um, so the Pentagon said that this new aid it brings the total military assistance that the U.S has pledged since Russia invaded on February 24th to more than 14.5 billion. Um, and this 600 and, sorry 675 million it's also being pulled from the 40 billion dollar Ukraine aid bill. The Biden administration told Congress last week that it seeks another $13.7 billion for Ukraine aid as the funds are close to running out. Austin told the contact group kind of the theme of his message at this meeting was that this is long term. We're going to be supporting Ukraine for the long haul as there's no signs that the war will be ending anytime soon. The U.S. and NATO have made clear that they are prepared to support the war against Russia for years and years to come. He said, quote, we will work together to train Ukraine's forces for the long haul. We will work together to help integrate Ukraine's capabilities and bolster its joint operations for the long haul. We will work together to upgrade our defense industrial basis to meet Ukraine's requirements for the long haul. And we will work together for production and innovation to meet Ukraine's self-defense needs for the long haul." End quote. So he's really hammering that point that this is long-term, this is long haul. And what he's saying is that they're going to boost the military industrial uh, base, the military industrial complex, that whole industry is getting a boost because of this war. And they're going to churn out uh, production and everybody's getting paid. And I should have mentioned, I try to mention it in the articles that I write about Austin is that before he became the head of the Pentagon, before he was appointed as Secretary of Defense, he served on the board of Raytheon. And Raytheon has been making a killing on this war. Who would have thought? (laughs) Um, So Austin said that the U.S. and its allies are seeing the demonstrable success of their support for Ukraine on the battlefield. But Ukraine is taking heavy losses in its southern counteroffensive and doesn't appear to be regaining territory in the south there, in the Kherson offensive, which we're going to get into more in the next article here but i just want to take a moment to mention our sponsor the book how the west brought war to ukraine by benjamin ablo it's a great little book it's short about 60 to 70 pages so you could read it in a day but it's jam packed full of information if you know you're not super uh caught up on all the issues that the us and nato the things that they did to provoke this war this is just the perfect summary of it And what I think people should do, it's only $10 is they should go on Amazon and and buy a few copies and hand them out because it's something people could breeze through quickly. And, um, you know, people that just don't know too much about the situation, which is a lot of people, a lot of Americans. So go buy the book. You could purchase it. Uh, You'll find the link in the description and the show notes. All right. So where were we here? The next one is about Ukraine's counteroffensive. Ukrainian soldiers detailed in comments to the Washington Post the steep toll that Ukraine was facing in its southern Kherson offensive, an operation that the U.S. reportedly helped Ukraine prepare for. Since launching the offensive at the end of August, Ukrainian officials haven't offered much detail about the operation, and reporters are not allowed on the front lines. But the Ukrainian soldiers who spoke with the post in a hospital, they painted a grim picture of what the battle has been like for the Ukrainian side. The Ukrainian soldiers said that they lacked the artillery needed to oust Russia's forces from their positions. The soldiers said that they had to carefully ration their munitions and that when they did fire their weapons, they had trouble hitting their targets. One platoon commander told the post that Ukrainian forces lost five people for every one that the Russians did. So 5 to 1 casualty rate. And this is a map I put in from South Front. Um, That just shows this is um, in the south by Kherson where the fighting has been uh, taking place. And now Ukraine has claimed some success in this offensive, but the claims cannot really be verified. It's really tough to know exactly what's happening on the ground. The soldiers that were interviewed by the Post said that they were able to capture some villages that were previously controlled by Russia, but it's not clear if Ukraine is capable of holding on to these positions. Now, this week, Ukraine launched another counteroffensive in eastern Ukraine in the Kharkiv region. And according to the military analysis website South Front, Ukraine has had some success in its attack on Russian positions near Kharkiv. Uh, a report published by South front on Thursday said that the Kharkiv offensive has quote been one of the been one of the major successes of the Ukrainian military on the front line since the beginning of the Russian military operation in February and quote Russian media reported that fighting continued on Thursday in the region and that Ukrainian shelling has intensified in recent days so South front um they're a site I check pretty regularly and they're not like other western media outlets that have kind of been portraying that ukraine's been winning the war this whole time they've been uh you know their updates have been mostly minor because really it's just kind of been a stalemate for a while now but this shows that ukraine did gain a little territory on thursday during their fighting in this region and you know it's not clear at all and and i don't know it's tough to follow the battlefield stuff i uh if Ukraine is capable of holding these positions or if Russia is going to be able to just push them right back. But I just thought it was interesting. Cause again, I haven't seen South front really show Ukraine be this successful in any of the, the fighting recently. So I thought it was just worth mentioning to you guys with the battlefield stuff. It's hard for me to follow day to day. That's like a whole job in itself. So I usually just kind of give summaries of what's going on once, once in a while. But again, it's just a shame. It's a, how many people appear to be dying and that this war just doesn't seem like it had there's an end in sight again as lloyd austin made very clear and just more ukrainians are going to die more russians are going to die and uh it's just going to drag on and on it seems like all right the next one here the u.s military is developing a new testing facility in saudi arabia this is according to a report from NBC News that cited three Pentagon officials. They said that the U.S. military is working on developing a new testing facility in Saudi Arabia. The exact location is not known yet, but they will call it the Red Sands Integrated Experiment, Experimentation Center, which is a similar name if you're familiar with the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The facility will develop and test integrated air defense systems as the U.S. is looking to foster Israeli-Arab military cooperation in that area. A Pentagon official told NBC, quote, with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia at the center of gravity for many future regional security endeavors, this is an opportunity, end quote. That's interesting wording, that Saudi Arabia is at the center of gravity for many future regional security endeavors. They have big ideas for Saudi Arabia. Pentagon officials said that there is not yet a firm deadline on when Red Sands can begin operations and that it likely won't happen before the end of this year. The costs aren't clear either. The U.S. is exploring a plan where it will pay up to 20% of the costs and provide 20% of the personnel while allies make up the rest. The plan comes as Israel is looking to build a U.S.-backed anti-Iran alliance in the region with Washington's Arab allies. Israel has stepped up military cooperation with the UAE and Bahrain since signing normalization deals with the two Gulf states at the end of 2020. So this is a pretty big development that's been going on. These were the Abraham Accords that were signed under the Trump administration. Since then, Israel really wants to build sort of a a NATO style, a U.S.-backed NATO style military alliance in the Middle East against Iran. And they haven't had much luck uh, so far. Again, they're increasing cooperation. They've done military drills with the UAE and Bahrain and even Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has been hesitant. They're hesitant to normalize with Israel, but sort of behind the scenes, they did openly do military drills with them um so this is something that's really uh developing here and so the u.s has fewer resources dedicated to the middle east now than it did just a few years ago because now it's focusing on confronting russia and china and the u.s still i don't want to downplay what the u.s is doing in the middle east there's still a presence in iraq syria and yemen and the number of troops assigned to but the so this is a Important statistic, I think, to show the shift towards Russia and China away from the Middle East. U.S. Central Command um, in 2020, they had 80,000 troops dedicated to the region, and that's gone down to about 35,000. So that's a pretty significant drop in just two years. And as the U.S. is focusing its resources elsewhere, a NATO style alliance consisting of Israel and these Gulf states could really help the U.S. maintain control. And influence in the region and counter Iran without the U.S. having to uh, do as much as they have in the past. So this is definitely just an issue and something that's been building for a while. Israel really wants this. And I think Saudi Arabia is eventually going to normalize with them. Maybe not for a few years, but definitely probably going to increase military cooperation. Okay. Next one here. This is from Middle East Eye. Lawmakers call for more oversight of USA to Gulf states, citing civilian harm in Yemen. So a bi- bipartisan group of House. Oh, sorry. I'm not sure if it was the House or the Senate. A bipartisan group of lawmakers on Wednesday urged the Biden administration to take further measures to ensure military, US military support to Saudi Arabia and the UAE does not contribute to civilian casualties in Yemen. Um, senators. Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Mike Lee sent letters to the State Department and Pentagon in response to a U.S. congressional watchdog report that found the U.S. had failed to determine how its aid to Gulf allies was linked to civilian casualties. So this is something, if you're familiar with the war in Yemen at all, that the U- the coalition that the U.S. backs that consists of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and other Gulf states just regularly targeted civilians throughout this war. Civilian infrastructure bombed their Sewage, their waterworks, bomb farms, bomb the hospitals, bomb schools, houses, school buses—just every piece of civilian infrastructure you could imagine. So um, it's no surprise that this watchdog found that uh, the U.S. hasn't really done anything to prevent it. But now the situation in Yemen—it's at a stalemate. There's a very fragile ceasefire going on. There still haven't been any S- Saudi airstrikes since March. And it's an important time to press for them to pass this War Powers resolution that is in the, uh, there's one in the House and the Senate. And the Senate is back in session this week. So people are getting on the phones and calling their senators. And you could do it just by dialing one eight three three stop war And they'll connect you with your senator's office. And you can go to one-eight three three 833 stop warcom And they have a nice prompt for you here. That you could read through because I, I don't know about you, but I always feel like just awkward calling, uh, you know, an office like a congressperson's office. It feels kind of silly sometimes, but I think it does make a difference. There's a lot of people behind this. So if you could do that, just dial one eight three three All right. The next one here. This is from Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. Senator questions Israeli report on American journalists' killing. Senator Chris Van Hollen, he's a Democrat from Maryland, he objected to Israel's finding in the killing of American journalist Shireen Abu-Ekla. In May, just to go over it quick, she was shot in the head by an Israeli sniper, and then Israel released this report on Monday that said its soldiers probably killed her, but it was unintentionally, and that's it, there's not going to be any investigation further. But Van Hollen is calling for the US government to carry out an official inquiry, because the Israeli line, again, is that it was an accident, and that they were returning gunfire. But as this Senator Van Hollen points out, all these reports from CNN, the UN and other Western media outlets found that there was no fighting in the area where she was killed. So the whole defense of the Israeli, you know trying to excuse the incident is that they're saying they were returning fire, but when it shows that 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 wasn't happening. And this is investigations from the New York Times, The Associated Press, The Washington Post. These are all outlets that are usually pretty pro-Israel and uh, stick with the, the pro-Israeli narrative for the most part. So it's significant. And after the report was released, by Israel, the U.S. called on Israel to review its um, rules of engagement and stuff for in the West Bank. She was killed in the West Bank and Yair Lapid, the Israeli prime minister, he firmly rejected that and said, no, only nobody dictates to us what we do here. So um, but yeah, it's I mean, it's good to see a senator. I don't know too much about this Van Hollen uh, guy, but it's good to see a senator speaking out about it. Um, then the last, we just posted uh, that uh, Queen Elizabeth has died, which I'm sure you've heard about elsewhere, but she died right after swearing in uh, Liz Truss as the prime minister who might um, who might get us all killed. Um, but anyway, that's it for the news. We got a few good viewpoints, an original one from Ted Snyder. That's great as always. And uh, that's it for the week. Hopefully uh, you guys have a good weekend, can enjoy yourselves. I'll be back to catch you up for a show. I'll be writing and recording on Sunday night to get a show out for Monday morning. Um, You could contact the show, news at antiwar.com. Donate, antiwar.com slash donate. Buy merch. We got great t-shirts and hats. I got to keep reminding you guys of that because this stuff's pretty good. It's really high quality and it's just a good good way to support us and you get a cool shirt or hat or whatever you want to buy out of it. Um, You could find the link in the description. But I will catch you guys after the weekend. Thanks for listening.